You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. As someone who didn't have the internet during this portions of today, it's uh, it's great to hear from you both. I'm glad that this was even possible for us. It's good to be reconnected with you, Aaron. You guys, every week every week that we do this amidst this quarantine, I'm just going to ask, how, how are you guys doing? How are you holding up? I'm doing a lot better now than when I didn't have the internet. <laughs> that was a dark moment. I thought about a lot of different life choices and how I might have chosen a different path if I knew that I was not going to have the internet for uh, months. We're all very dependent on the internet, but no one I know is more dependent on the internet than you, Aaron. I think Evan is actually one of the people I know who, who could potentially live without the internet. Yeah, why not? Evan's fine. Evan's prepared for all of this stuff. Evan's uh, ready to uh, disappear at a moment's notice, change his identity, what have you. Everything breaks down immediately for me if I like lose the internet for half an hour. Uh, well, things are breaking down for people in all sorts of ways, and I had a pretty interesting conversation about that uh, for this week's show. My guest is Eva Holland. She is a freelance magazine writer. She writes for Outside, a whole bunch of other places. Uh, she also has a book. That's coming out on April 14th, so a little less than a week from when we're posting this episode. Uh, the book is called Nerve. It's about facing your fears. Eva had this kind of wild couple of months in which all of the great fears of her life uh, came to pass. And instead of curling up in the fetal position, she went out and reported like how fear works. And we talked about the book, but also we talked about what it is like to launch a book into this moment. You know, like we were supposed to do this interview in person in New York uh, instead, it was remote. Eva lives in the Yukon in Canada. Uh, and so she's all alone in her house uh, with this project that she spent years doing uh, about to come out in the world in such a different way than she'd imagined. So we talked about that, but also... She was supposed to do this. This was supposed to be her book tour that we were taping this on, right? Totally. Yeah, she was, uh, she was coming to throw a book party in New York, you know? And we talked a little bit about what it has been like for her to navigate magazines in New York from so far away and how she's done that over the last 10 years or so. Uh, but then we also talked about what like being a freelance magazine writer is going to mean after all this. And I think, you know, she was pretty calm about it. I guess that's what happens after you write a book about facing your fears, but I think it's a pretty existential moment for her and for freelance magazine writers. She's not clear like 
whether she will have a job on the other side of this. As a person who talks to a good number of freelance magazine writers on a regular basis, I hope that she provides some answers for all of us. She will at least provide some answers for how to get through it. I feel like she took some lessons away from this book and, uh, and at least figured out some like coping mechanisms. She was definitely much calmer than I was throughout the interview. A lot of slacks out there, a lot of, a lot of text chains out there about this, this particular matter. Um, we're brought to you by MailChimp. They make this show possible, uh, even in times like this. Um, thanks to them. Obviously, it goes without saying that if you've been thinking about starting an email newsletter, uh, this is really this is really the time. Uh, and uh, maybe it will take you somewhere new in your career. Now here's Max with Eva Holland. Hi, Eva. Hi, Max. Thanks for um, doing the podcast. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to finally have you on. I'm glad that we uh, we waited till now because you got this book coming out. I do. True story. This is the time. <laughs> the book is called Nerve. It is about fear. I'm glad we're talking about it right now because I'm having a uh, I'm having a fearful time. Yeah, it's a fearful time in the world. It is a fearful time. It is. It is. We're going to talk about that. But first, I just want to know, uh, like, how are you doing? And you are calling from Whitehorse. And I want to know what it's like there, too. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, I would say, at this point. We're sort of three weeks into lockdown measures here, like a lot of folks. Um, And the first two weeks, I would say I struggled. And now I've kind of settled into the groove a little more. Kind of reached that point where um, I can't really remember before this now. Yeah, yeah. It's our new reality, I guess, for now. We're very adaptable. It's kind of amazing. What does lockdown in Whitehorse look like? And maybe for people who don't know the town very well, can you could you tell me about it? Yeah, so Whitehorse is the capital of the Yukon Territory in northern Canada. So if you know where the Alaska Panhandle is, I'm kind of like 100 miles north of the tip of the Panhandle. And there's about 25, 30,000 of us here. We have three Starbucks, <laughs> all of which are currently drive through only. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of one of those small remote communities where people sort of make their own fun and um, pretty tight knit, I'd say. And it's felt like a good place to be for this so far because... So far, at least people are mostly being kind and following the rules and helping each other out. It's that kind of a place. But it is, and we feel a bit protected here because it's relatively difficult to get here. So we still only have six confirmed cases in the territory, and they're all travel connected so far. But we do only have four ICU beds um, here total. So In the whole territory? In the whole territory. There's only one real hospital here. It's, it's like half a mile from my house. Wow. And so, like, as soon as there's anything, the only move is to do lockdown. Yeah. We locked down a week before we had any cases. Do you live by yourself? I do. um, But only sort of, I guess I would say. I live in my friend's basement suite, and she lives upstairs with her teenager, and uh, who I tweet about sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we've made kind of a household pod for this. We're not, like hugging or sharing food, but we're transiting back and forth, you know, sharing the laundry room and and occasionally having a drink together and that kind of thing. 
That's good. That's good. I, I got a couple of people in my life who live alone and uh, it just feels like it's a completely different and much more difficult situation for those folks. Yeah, I think there's pros and cons for everyone, right? Um, but living alone is definitely a, an intensely isolated experience. You know, I remember when my last hug was and it was uh, three weeks ago today, I think. <laughs> um wow. So there's that to be said for having, you know, small people around, but also I don't have to look after small people during all this, which is nice too. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the small people need a lot of looking after is my <laughs> current experience. So we're talking on a Sunday night. This is going to come out in a couple of days and then your book is going to come out next week. So this is going to come out six days, I think, before your book comes out. What is it like to have a book coming out amidst all of this? <laughs> It has been emotional. Obviously, you can't plan for this, and you don't hope for this at all in relation to a book launch. You know, I joked with my friends that I hoped my book would make it into airport bookstores, and, like, airport bookstores aren't a thing for the foreseeable future. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, yeah, we were supposed to do this in person. I was supposed to be in New York a couple weeks ago to do this, but obviously that did not occur. And, um, yeah, you go back and forth, I think, between... I was really upset and then I felt silly for being upset because, you know, people are dying, lives are being upended, like, okay, I didn't get to throw a launch party for my first book, like, wah, wah, you know, <laughs> um, but it is a big deal and it's a loss, I think, um, you know, I, I, I was really worked up about this book coming out all winter because it just, it feels like, you know, I'm a freelancer and I think we work every particular threshold up into a big moment of like, this is going to make me or break me or, you know, this story is going to get killed and my career is going to be over. Or, you know, like these are the things we tell ourselves, or at least I do. And so I had spent a lot of time this winter trying to talk myself down about the book. And my mantra was like, whatever happens with sales, whatever happens with reviews, all that stuff you can't control, prestige, money, whatever, the book's going to come out and you're going to have an amazing party with all your friends <laughs> and nobody can take that from you. <laughs> so when the party, when the launch party was canceled, I definitely was like, but that was my one thing that nobody could take from me. <laughs> um, so, but you know, I've kind of come through the worst of that. And um, it's been really cool to see what people are doing to try to support bookstores and authors right now. And the interest in virtual events, like it's people are rallying around, which is really heartening and makes you feel special in a different way than a launch party or a book tour. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that. That's okay. <laughs> you know, there's worse things. I'll have a party later. What do you think it might mean for the other things you were thinking about for the prestige and for the money? It's so hard to say what will happen. You know, I am fortunate in that my book's subject matter is somewhat topical now. So maybe that maybe that helps. Maybe the fact that everybody is stuck at home and looking for things to read helps. Maybe the fact that some of the big name sort of marquee books that were supposed to come out this spring have been postponed helps like a smaller fish like me break through. I don't I don't know. Or maybe it's bad to launch a book when everybody's losing their jobs, you know? Like, um, it's just so hard to say, it's, and it's out of my hands. So I'm just trying to do what I can to get the word out there and, and see what happens. And it does feel 
less, you know, I'm less caught up in my sort of freelance career anxieties every day, I would say, that this goes on. Is that right? Because bigger anxieties are taking their place or, or, or why? Yeah, I guess I'm kind of like, I'm like, maybe I'll become a paramedic. Like, who knows? You know, like it's magazines that I write for are already shutting down from this. Like, you can only freak out so much before you decide that if you have to end up finding another way to make a living, that's what you'll do. Well, that's what, I mean, that was the other thing I was going to ask you about, but it sounds like you're already on the other side of it was, it seems very unclear to me what this moment is going to mean for the places you write for. And, you know, you've been navigating sort of magazine world from, you know, several thousand miles away from New York for a long time. But how does it feel right now to know that some, yeah, some of these magazines are closing, like this industry that you work in is maybe going to be decimated by this. I don't know. Like, uh, how, how are you navigating it? How are you already on the other side of it? I guess I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very early on that mountain, I think. Yeah. I think I'm only, you know, temporarily on the other side of it. My, uh, after my mom died, my grief counselor showed me this graphic of grief as a medicine ball rather than like stages that you pass through. And so you like swing from anger to acceptance and then like back to anger again. And then, you know, <laughs> so I I, th- I don't think that I've like moved past whatever feelings I'm going to have about what's happening to the industry, but I'm in a good place with it at the moment and just like rolling with that. What are the conversations with your editors like? Like, are you pitching? What's happening for you right now? Right. So I'm in a funny position because I had cleared my decks for my book tour. So I did some a lot of work this winter. A lot of those stories are just kind of coming out now. But I only had one assignment on the go for April, May, and that was about a jury trial. So all jury trials have been postponed indefinitely. So that's like on the back burner, maybe forever. And that was the only assignment on my plate because I was going to be traveling for most of April and May and trying to, you know, sell the book as hard as I could. And I wanted to just clear space to concentrate on doing whatever media I could. So I don't currently have any assignments, which is an interesting place to be. And I'm sort of thinking about not pitching for a while until the dust settles a little bit. Why is that? Partly because I have to concentrate at least for a couple weeks on just trying to launch this book, do media interviews. I'm writing kind of like spinoff essays in some cases, doing Q&As, all that stuff. And partly because I feel like people don't really know what's going to happen yet. You know, freelance budgets are being tightened or cut at a lot of places. I sort of feel like maybe in a month, editors will have a better sense of what their plan is for the summer and fall. I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm avoiding the question for the time being, uh, <laughs> mostly. Yeah. It's interesting to me, Eva, like um, just hearing you talk about it. You seem pretty calm. I am currently extremely calm. I was not a week ago. I don't know how long the calm will last. I am enjoying the calm while it lasts. <laughs> so my, my hypothesis was that the calm was due to you having so many breakthroughs in this book. You know, I won't lie. I think that the research I did for my book is helping me right now. And I say that not just uh, in a sort of a, if you buy it, maybe it will help you too, kind of a way. Um, If you want to be this calm through a global pandemic, buy my book. Yeah. No, I mean, like, I wrote a book where I researched exactly how fear and anxiety work in our brains and our bodies. And I went to a bunch of therapy for the book. And I feel like it has equipped me better for the challenges of life in general, not just this global pandemic. But like, 
Okay, so besides the party, that was the other thing I told myself nobody could take away from me, is that, like, I came out of this book project with, like, an objectively better quality of life. For people listening who don't know, can you just uh, walk me through what that project was? Sure. So the book is about the science of fear, but it also threads a personal story through. It's kind of a mix of memoir and, I guess, immersion journalism and then more traditional kind of science reporting. My greatest fear in life was always my mom dying. She was an orphan and she had sort of imparted to me the enormous impact that losing her mom in particular and her parents more generally had on her. And so I was always pretty in my head more than the average kid, I think, about the idea of my mom dying. Um, And when she did die quite suddenly five years ago, I was initially pretty wrecked. And then as kind of the worst of the grief receded and I understood that I was not going to be impacted in the same ways that my mom had been sort of like marked for life by, you know, significant depression and that sort of thing. I had this sort of empowering realization that I had faced my worst fear and survived it and that maybe I could renegotiate or confront some of my other fears as well. And so that's sort of the the conceit of the book is that I, I launch on this project to face my other fears and see if I can resolve some of them or, or improve them in some way. And along the way, you know, there's scientists and case studies and adventure things. <laughs> <laughs> adventure things. Yeah, it kind of weaves between these three fears of yours, heights and car crashes, in addition to losing your mom and then like a bunch of science and trying to research this. Did it feel like a totally natural thing for you to do to go investigate this? Like, I feel like most people, when they encounter their biggest fear, run as hard as they can in the other direction. (laughs) Did it feel like just like the natural thing for you to do to like, you're like, you know what, I'm going to report this out. Yeah, it did feel natural. You know, I'd done a lot of immersion reporting before. That's a format that I'm comfortable in. I like kind of throwing myself in the deep end and figuring it out. So that felt natural. And the more, I'm sure like a lot of people, once I had the book deal, I had the like, holy shit, now I have to do it um, (laughs) thing. But the more I worked on it, the more natural it felt and the more it felt like the right book for me to be writing as my first book. You know, it just kept finding more connections between my life and the science and things kind of like fit together kind of well while I was reporting it. Did the book deal come to you or did you go find the book deal? I went and found the book deal. Yeah, I worked on the proposal very intermittently for about two years. And then um, we sent my agent sent out the proposal in March, April 2018. And we got the deal. And then I had about a year to turn around the first draft and then another year to publication. And did you hit those deadlines? I did. I, Max, don't tell my magazine editors. I filed my book manuscript four days early. Wow, that is uh, that is impressive. That's some Evan Radliff stuff right there. <laughs> I have never filed anything else early, so uh, <laughs> it's, it has not become a habit. <laughs> I, I feel like that's the first rule of freelancing: is like be the person who turns everything in on time. On time, sure, but not not early. What is that? Early. Who does that? <laughs> and so, how do you think that that doing all that work prepared you for this moment? Or at least, even if we're in a pendulum, like a medicine ball pendulum, and you and you happen to be in like a calm piece of it, like. Help me understand the through line between doing that work and uh, sort of being so zen about potentially your job crumbling. I mean, there's there's sort of practical things like when I, you know, when I woke up in the night last week and, and my heart was like beating too fast and too loud and it was a little bit freaky. I was like, my heart shouldn't be 
doing that? Am I, am I having a panic attack right now? And then I was like, oh, you know, like, you know about these, you know how this works. And I just kind of like thought about, this is so lame. I could just kind of like thought about my neurons and kind of like breathe through it and, uh, um, sound lame. seemed to help. <laughs> and in the, in the bigger picture, I don't know, like, I guess it's not exactly the book, but everything I went through around it that has just kind of like, I feel equipped for bad shit in a way that I didn't five years ago. I feel equipped to grieve. I feel equipped to understand that this is going to be sad and hard, but like we're going to come through the other side of it eventually, most of us. And uh, and then we'll come through what happens after that too, as far as dealing with, you know, trauma and, and grief. And I don't know. <laughs> Again, this Zen is maybe temporary, but, uh, <laughs> but that's, yeah. <laughs> when you started working on the book, what was... Um... It was step one. Like you sell a book like this that says like, I'm going to systematically and scientifically face my fears. Then what do you do? (laughs) Uh, Nothing for about a month. (laughs) Just burn some of that time because I had so much to spare. No. um, (laughs) The first thing I did was I started reading kind of like big picture books about brain science and the science of emotions and phobias and this sorts of thing, cover to cover. I felt like I had, hmm, this might be bad to say, but I kind of like skated on the proposal as much as I could. I What do you mean by that? Like I did the absolute bare minimum I felt I could to get that proposal done. I had done a previous book proposal that hadn't worked out the way I had hoped that I had put a ton of time and money into. And so this time I was like, well, I, I got to make sure I don't get burned like that again, you know. So I didn't do, like, a shit ton of research ahead of time. Do you think like that? Like, as a freelancer, do you think about, like, the economy of your time that way? Like, I can't put too many hours into this proposal because it's, like, time I could be using for articles? Yeah, you have to – I mean, this is one of the big tensions of freelancing is, like, how much do you put into a pitch before you know if it's going to sell? And the book proposal was just that writ large for me. And that's – you know, that's a question that we all deal with and it varies by person and it varies by story. You know, some things I can pitch without a ton of pre-reporting. Some things take a lot more pre-reporting and you have to find a balance. You know, John Valiant told a seminar I was in once that the New Yorker feature that became the Golden Spruce, he worked on the pitch intermittently for a year. Hmm. And I, I just, I can't, I can't do that. That's not. Um, yeah, I know. That sounds so luxurious. <laughs> that doesn't fit with the the framework of my life financially or, or otherwise. So you're always thinking about like, you want to be on solid ground. You don't want to screw up. You don't want to pitch something that doesn't work out because then you look like an asshole. But you want to do enough to feel safe and secure in your pitch without overextending yourself, you know, because it's, it might be an investment that you don't get anything back on. I want to make sure that we get back to the book, but I have some more questions about um, money. Can I ask you some questions about yes. money? Yes. I've been waiting so many years for you to ask me about money, Max. <laughs> okay. How's how's um, how's money by you? How are you doing money-wise? I'm okay right now. Because I was planning on not working much for April and May anyway, I, you know, I worked really hard last fall and winter, and those checks are still coming in. So for right now, I'm good. The question is, if I don't have assignments by June or July, then I'm going to start to worry. Because you always, with magazines especially, you always have to be planning six months ahead, right? Like, I'm going to get, you know, a big feature check, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, TBD, pandemic delays and all that. But um, 
that will kind of float me till like, you know, September, October. But then I need to be doing work between now and then that will have paid out by October. <laughs> you always have to be keeping an eye on that because specifically with magazine timelines, even if they pay on acceptance, that can still take months. And if they pay on publication, it can take close to a year. How big is that check for? It is for about 6300 US. So with the exchange rate right now, that comes close to ten grand Canadian. And that'll last you till like September, October? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I got other money in the bank right now. Yeah, I, I'd say, well, it depends what happens with all this. But I mean, my expenses now that I don't go anywhere or do anything except buy <laughs> groceries are, you know, I can, I can get by on about two grand a month if I'm careful. Are you good at getting magazines to pay you? Mm, I'm good at getting them to pay me. I'm not good at negotiating higher rates. What, uh, how do you do that better? <laughs> I think step one is that I should ask more often. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm told that's the first step is to ask. Uh, I often sort of like feel like I need to pick my battles and maybe I'm more likely to negotiate a higher travel budget or different rights or a higher word count. You know, all these things can factor in differently. I, I'm trying to get better at just straight up asking for a higher rate, but um, yeah. I, I still find that kind of mortifying. Are you really focused on the IP stuff? I try to be smart about it. It's getting harder and harder. You mean like magazines are pushing harder and harder to control the derivative rights of, of stories? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I long ago stopped signing away all rights to anything feature or personal essay type of thing. But now even the better contracts that aren't all rights or work made for hire, as the phrase goes, are often trying to pick up movie rights for sure, movie TV, and then sometimes anthology or book rights as well. So I try to push back on that stuff, partly just sort of as a matter of principle anthology rights we're, we're like what how much money are we talking about with anthology rights i don't know <laughs> you, you take that like 200 hundred dollar check i don't think it's editors who write these contracts <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> seems very divorced from reality sometimes you've been freelancing for 12 years mm-hmm. how has like money changed for you over those 12 years i mean you would assume in a normal and healthy world that the graph would be like going up and to the right mm-hmm. but i feel like as you have been doing like increasingly fantastic and higher and higher profile work, the industry around you has been contracting and suffering. So I, I'm, I'm interested in, in what that graph looks like for you. Yeah, the graph looks pretty good for me in part because I came in kind of at rock bottom. You know, I started freelancing full time. I quit my day job in April 2008. Um, so I don't know. I would have to Google like what day the crash was, but <laughs> uh, it was around there somewhere, right? Like, <laughs> so you wait just so I have this uh, right. You uh, quit your day job like days before the 2008 financial crash and launched your book into a global pandemic. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, got it, got it. So I started out really at the bottom of the industry, like blog posts for fifteen dollars, twenty five dollars a pop. You know, when I quit my day job, it was because I was going to have to start turning down writing work to keep it. It wasn't because I was making anything remotely like a living from writing yet. I think I was making between $600 and $800 a month from writing when I quit my day job. And I was, you know, those first few years, I was very much in the travel writing world, mostly like travel blogging, a lot of service writing and a lot of kind of like blogging news and trends for, you know, 25 bucks a pop. And so that was like... I was in my 20s and it didn't matter that I was making, you know, $28,000 a year or whatever. Um, And so that's gotten better even as, you know, 
by the time I was writing for the big magazines, the glory days were over anyway. And so for me, I was like, whoa, $2 a word. Like, what? <laughs> um, you know, I started out at like five cents, 10 cents a word, you know? So for a long time, my income didn't significantly, I would say I had like three or four years where I was kind of around the the 35,000 to 40,000 a year mark. And I was sort of consciously keeping it there. And instead of thinking about it in terms of earning more, I was consciously thinking about writing less and writing better, you know, like rather than trying to level up money wise and pushing myself, I had just been so overworked. You know, I was, I used to do a count every year and I was writing 80,000 to a hundred thousand words a year, published words a year, Wow, which is a lot when you're not a daily newspaper writer. <laughs> That's a ton. When you started out, when you were doing those like travel blog posts, what was your ambition? Like, where did you want to get to? Early on, my ambition was like to be the kind of writer who's in the best American travel writing. I was really focused on travel initially. I hadn't gone to journalism school. I didn't consider myself a journalist or a reporter in any way. But pretty quickly, within two or three years, I didn't feel entirely fulfilled from all the travel stuff, even when I was able to write something more kind of personal or meaningful. And I got pretty interested in reading like long form narrative journalism at that time. This was around 2010, 2011. And that's when the ambition shifted from like, I want to be Paul Theroux or whatever to, you know, I want to be Chris Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then also the bottom really fell out for me around 2010, 2011 as well. A bunch of my, outlets that had sort of held on since 2008 collapsed. And so it was sort of like I sort of had a a blank slate anyway in terms of assignments and and outlets and editors. So that's when I kind of started over and tried to, you know, be a general interest feature writer for magazines. And it's probably that point that like I met you on the internet one way or the other. Like it's probably right around then. But I have always wondered... Eva, how you have done this, become as successful a freelancer as you are from Whitehorse? You know, it's why I moved here, which sounds crazy, but I moved to Whitehorse specifically because I thought it would be a good base to freelance from. When did you move? I moved here in November 2009. So I'd been freelancing full-time for about a year and a half at that point. And I was looking for a home base that would be like a good place to be. Why did Whitehorse seem like the right place to be freelancing from? Well, I came to visit. I have a cousin here about my age, and I came to visit him. After I quit my day job, I gave up my apartment and like lived out of a suitcase for my first year and a half of freelancing because I wasn't making enough money to be on a lease. So I like did hostels and house sits and short-term sublets and things like this, bounced around for a year and a half, which was exhausting, and I'm extremely not built for the nomadic life hashtag van life or whatever, but, um, I didn't have a van, but, (laughs) um, so White Horse was where I came when that ended and I had visited here along the way and it just seemed like a cool community and like it would grant me access to a lot of stories, you know, in Northern Canada, in Alaska, got me to the West coast. It seemed like a place where I would have not a lot of competition and be able to maybe make a bit of a name for myself with regional stories. So that was where I started was with, you know, selling stories about sled dog races and stuff like that. To who? Well, when I, so if we start from sort of 2011, when my travel writing career basically collapsed, 
two things happened in late 2011. One is that I became part of uh, Vela, Sarah Menke Dick's online magazine for women. And the other is that I got hired to be a maternity replacement at a northern Canadian magazine called Up Here. So I spent 2012 working on both of those things, and that was kind of my feature writing school. And then when I went back to full-time freelancing after the mat leave ended in January 2013, I sold my first feature to Glenn Stout at SB Nation Longform on New Year's Day. I believe I sent him the pitch on New Year's Day, and he replied right away. (laughs) Um, What was that moment like for you? Oh, it was amazing. I knew Glenn just through the internet and Best American Sports. I had sent one of my Vela stories to him for Best American Sports Writing, and he had put it in the notables. And so when I sent him this pitch about the Yukon Quest, the big sled dog race up here, he replied and he said, Eva, I've been hoping to hear from you. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, that was a big step for me. And then it was around then as well that I started to get to know people at Outside, but it, it took me a while to land a print feature assignment there. How do you go about that? To use Outside as a way to help me understand how you like make inroads at a place and start working it until you end up with that feature assignment. Sure. Um, And this fits with the how do you do it from Whitehorse question too, because part of the answer is that I leave Whitehorse and I go places. So with regards to Outside specifically, I had at some point pitched Nick Jackson when Nick was running Outside's website. So I had done a couple stories for them on the website. And in spring 2013, my mom and my stepdad went to Phoenix for the winter and I went to visit them and I rented a car and drove seven hours to Santa Fe (laughs) and I had messaged Nick, you know, who I knew there and was like, Hey, I'm coming by. Can we, can we get a drink? And he, bless his heart, he understood exactly what I was asking and he was like, yeah, we can get drinks and I'll tell the print editors. Which is like just gold to a freelancer, right? When <laughs> And just so I understand that story correctly, what you're saying is that you drove seven hours to have a drink with Nick and some editors at Outside. Right. Except that in the interim, Nick got the job at Pacific Standard. Right. So he was packing up his Jeep and leaving and he couldn't introduce me to the print editors. <laughs> um, so ultimately what happened is I sat in my motel room in Santa Fe having driven seven hours from Phoenix and cold emailed some editors to see if they wanted to drink with me. And that is how I met Alex Hurd, who's still my, my primary editor at, uh, at Outside. Did you tell Alex when you wrote him blind, like, I'm sitting at a motel, I'm here to talk to you? Or, did you, or were you like, I, I was just passing through town? I said, I'm just passing through. Like, <laughs> I think I tried to be cool about it. Like, I'm totally not a weirdo who drove here to talk to you. And so, yeah, like, I met Alex face-to-face, and we had a nice time. And, you know, I knew him from Twitter. He didn't follow me back at that point, but we had joked around a bit. And and then at the end of the night, he was like, you know, pitch me. And I was like, oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, but then it was uh, three years before I landed a feature assignment that stuck. So it's not like you just, uh, you know, meet somebody and then all the barriers dissolve. Wait, it was three years from your uh, seven hour sojourn until you ended up in the magazine? For a feature. Yeah. Yeah. Three years. Some dedication. I was, you know, I look back and I was so determined that I was going to like will this career into existence for myself. And I don't know why I was so sure it would work out. I, the odds were not in my favor, like not to be like 
too emotional, but like during the tough times that we are experiencing, I've been reflecting and being like, you know, it's pretty amazing that 10 years ago I was like, I'm going to write features for outside someday. And now I am, you know, like that's really cool. And I don't know why I was so persistent. I don't know why I didn't get discouraged along the way. I do, you know, in this specific example of outside, like Alex was really encouraging during those three years. I would send him a pitch and he would say, oh, this one didn't quite go at the meeting, but like we want to get you in the magazine and keep trying, you know? That kind of validation is essential to carrying on in the face of, you know, constant rejection in a tough industry, I think. What role do you think Twitter played in it or has played in it? Yeah, Twitter. I, I think I owe my career to Twitter, to be totally honest. I don't think I could have done this from Whitehorse in the way that I have without Twitter. That's how I have made friends and had colleagues. You know, that's why I have like writer pals to talk about things with. That's how I know most of my editors. You know, I'll give you an example. The first time I pitched Bill Wasik, he was still at Wired then. And he replied, I sent some stupid front of book pitch that was like probably the same as like a thousand other bad pitches Wired gets. And Bill said, hey, Eva, I like your tweets. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, why don't you try sending me a feature idea sometime? And I was like, well, okay, if he thinks I can send him a feature idea, then I guess I have permission to send him a feature idea. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So that's like literally like uh, Twitter getting you a feature assignment with someone at Wired who would go on to be the deputy editor at the Times Magazine. I mean, I still haven't written anything for Bill, but the validation was huge. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time feeling like I needed permission to pitch kind of the higher echelon of magazines, the bigger magazines, I guess. And when editors explicitly gave me permission, like Alex did or like Bill did, I was like, okay, well, then now you're going to be hearing from me. And so you just keep doing it. Like you just keep sending those pitches. Yeah. I've, I've been in a relationship of sending pitches to Bill Wasik for eight years. <laughs> and, and you still haven't written one? I had one killed. What was it about? Well, it was published elsewhere eventually. It was okay. a profile of a competitive birder. I read that story. That story is great. Well, thanks. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about the book, but I have I have one more question on the how Eva pulled this shit off from Whitehorse <laughs> section of our conversation, okay. which is on the graph. So we were talking about the money graph. And so you were saying sort of like at some point in this run, you decided, all right, I need to be writing a little bit less and making a little bit more per word. And then once you made that move, like say the last three years, has money been steady for you? Has it been going up? Has it been going down? Like how has money worked more recently? It's been going up year on year the last probably three, four years. So went back to full-time freelancing in 2013 and I'd say sort of 2013, 2014, 2015 were those years where I was consciously sort of like accepting that the income level would remain low and the same and just try to work on other things. And then 2016 was kind of a screwed up year because my mom had just died and all that stuff. But then, yeah, 2017, 2018, 2019, I've been kind of like the curve has been going up. And I I would describe myself now as like earning a middle class income. Can you tell me what you made last year? Uh, What did I make last year? Um, My gross last year, I think, was like 72,000. Canadian. I appreciate you talking about it. I mean, um, most people don't want to. You know, I'm sure... Some family member will be horrified by this, but I I try to be as transparent as I can about money stuff without stepping on any toes um, as far as like, you know, publications not always being thrilled about how 
much we say or whatever. It's it's a bit of a fine line to walk, but. Do you talk about it with other writers? Like, do you compare notes on that stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And does that, like, drive the way that you negotiate? Well, that's how I know I'm bad at negotiating. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about this book. Okay. So you're, you're, uh, you're launching it into potentially uh, not an ideal book-selling moment. You can't have the one thing you told yourself no one could take away from you, which is a book party. But the topic of the book does seem potentially newly relevant. Like if you had to launch a book into a global pandemic, it might as well be one about dealing with fear. <laughs> what do you think people living through this might be able to, to take away from the book? For some people, maybe just understanding the physical processes involved in how we experience fear might be helpful in the same way that people are sort of like watching Contagion and, and you know, reading about the 1918 flu and stuff. I think for some people, information is is power right now. And, you know, one thing that I really emphasize in the book is how fear really is a physical experience. It's something that we experience in our bodies as much as as a feeling, you know, and so maybe that will be helpful for people to understand why they feel so weird right now. Um, and, you know, maybe some of the stuff about trauma in there will be useful. You know, maybe some people will try the weird trauma therapy that I did. What was the, what was the weird trauma therapy? Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing or EMDR. How does it work? How does it work? So a therapist prompts you typically through like beeping headphones or... I use these kind of buzzing pods. Uh, a therapist prompts you to move your eyes back and forth in a rhythm while they talk you through your traumatic experience. And it seems to sort of, you know, if you think of trauma, a traumatic memory as sort of like a memory that won't sort of be filed correctly, that's sort of like sticking out and interrupting, you know, we call them intrusive thoughts, intrusive memories. It sort of tidies them away. It, it makes them stop jumping out and, and hijacking you. So I had had this series of car accidents and I was having a problem with flashbacks and panic while driving. I, I couldn't stop thinking about dying in my car basically when I was driving on the highway. And I would be sort of taken over by these memories of these accidents and by picturing another one happening that would be worse. And so this this therapy kind of remarkably just put an end to all of that. Um, it just stopped the flashbacks and the panic. I still am a more cautious driver and I still can remember having a series of potentially fatal car accidents, but I don't um, hyperventilate and cry when I drive anymore, which is amazing. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the really like uh, incredible things about the book is like you do overcome a lot of these fears, like things that I maybe would have assumed were essentially like baked in. You know, mm -hmm. I guess like fears of my own that I've just like taken as like a, a, a constant, you know, like something that that are just going to be there. The idea that like you actually can pretty actively work through them was surprising to me. It was surprising to me, too. I'll be honest. I expected to be writing like a pretty wishy-washy epilogue to this book where I'm like, well, what matters is we learned along the way. You know, like <laughs> um, I didn't expect to be writing an epilogue where I'm like damn, I made some headway, you know? And uh, so that was that was really cool and, and surprising. And I, you know, I don't know if I would have, I don't know if I would have gone to therapy if it wasn't for the fact that I had to write a book about it. Like I might've just kept trying to like grit my teeth when I drive for who knows how long, I don't know. 
Well, that was part of why I was asking you earlier, like, what is it about you that like goes through an experience like you did and decides to like report it out, you know, like it almost felt to me like there was some instinct there that was like, this is actually the way I can do the therapy mm-hmm. is if I turn it into a journalistic project. Yeah, I think that was part of it. I, you know, a lot of the things that I do for stories are not things that I would have otherwise done in my personal life, but I often find them really rewarding. And then sometimes, you know, after I've done something for a story, it becomes a part of my life. I think the therapy thing was tricky because just in terms of like the nuts and bolts of reporting on your own therapy, like I wanted it to work. So I couldn't, I needed to be in the moment when I was in there. Like I wasn't taking notes while I was, you know, in the session. Um, so it was kind of a tricky thing to me. I would then come home and I'd be exhausted. It was just exhausting. And I would try to like type up all my notes from that session as accurately as I could afterwards and then like go to bed basically. But uh, yeah, there was some tricky logistical things with the reporting of the book like that, where you're sort of like trying to be in the moment, but also remember that you have to capture it later. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, and also it's like a one source situation here. You know, like uh, I assume there are also just some questions about being able to sort of accurately depict your own experience in those moments, you know? Yeah. In that case, my therapist had told me that if I ever wanted to look at her notes, I could. Oh, that's cool. Did you do it? I didn't take her up on that, but I was glad to have the option. What were the other kind of reporting challenges of the project? Well, so... The chapter where I go to Amsterdam and do this experimental phobia drug treatment was challenging. So the deal here is they scare the crap out of you and then they give you this drug and the drug sort of dissociates your fear reaction from your memories is the simplest summary I can come up with here. Um, That was pretty good. It's sort of, it gets compared to sort of eternal sunshine and the spotless mind or something, but doesn't erase your memory. It just sort of dislocates it from the reaction and seems to cure phobias in that way. So That one was challenging because I wasn't supposed to think about it for 24 hours afterwards. I wasn't supposed to write anything down. I wasn't supposed to be dwelling on what they had just, you know, they had terrorized me and then they had given me this pill and they were like, try to sleep, come back tomorrow, you know, and don't think about it. Don't get scared and don't think about what you just did for 24 hours. So I couldn't take notes for 24 hours after what was going to be a key scene in the book. That was sort of maddening to be told, don't even think about it when, of course, I want to be rehearsing how I'm going to write it. Yeah. So what'd you do? I waited. I, you know, I read a book and I went to bed really early and, and I waited until after I had gone back to the clinic and gotten the all clear the next day to, to write my notes. And then I wrote, so I did that treatment two weeks before my book deadline. And I wrote that scene basically on the plane home. And that was the last piece of the book aside from the epilogue that I hadn't written yet. I had already written everything else around it. Was it easy to write this book? Parts of it were. Parts of it were really hard. What were the hard parts? It was hard writing about my mom dying, even though I always knew I was going to. It's still, it's easy to write kind of raw material about that kind of thing, I think. You know, it just sort of pours out of you, but it's harder to make sort of like smart editorial decisions about that kind of material and be like, okay, what needs to be in here? What doesn't? Like to be sort of ruthless with your most personal copy ever is hard. How'd you do that? I took a lot of time with it. I took more time with those sections. They were the first parts of the book that I wrote. I wrote parts of them before I even had the book deal. I wrote some of that stuff about my mom's death. I wrote 
pretty soon after she died and with the intention of working it into a personal essay at least eventually. So I just took my time and um, went back to it over and over and tried to figure out what I really wanted to say. And and then that was a part that we worked on a lot with my book editors as well to try to figure out what was pertinent and what was just me, you know, letting my feelings out. Um, yeah. One of the things that really struck me about it, you were talking about the epilogue. One of the things that really struck me about it was one of the places you land, and I, I hope it's okay to mention this, is it's basically like um, you sort of like get over these specific fears and also kind of come to appreciate fear itself. Yeah. It was striking, I guess, for me particularly, like in this moment that we're living in, which feels sort of... Um, raw and unprecedented in terms of human emotion on some level, you know, like, uh, everyone in my house lost their minds yesterday. Like they just, <laughs> there's just like the waves of this thing are intense. Uh, and then to, to sort of finish your book today and have it land on this note of like, uh, coming to appreciate fear. I wouldn't quite say I'm there, but that was helpful. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah, it was helpful to me, too, to sort of reframe it that way. You know, fear is there because we want to live. It's important. I had spent so much time thinking about the ways in which it inconvenienced me or the ways in which my fear could be irrational or aberrant or, you know, overblown. And, you know, we treat it in the culture as like cowardice or weakness or whatever else. But it's a survival tool. It's our most important survival tool, maybe. And so that's why, you know, when I started out on this project, I was like, I'm going to overcome my fears. I'm going to conquer my fears. or I'm going to try to understand, you know, how we can conquer our fears. And, I, and it was all this sort of like violent language, right? And I really settled on more of like a renegotiation of the terms of the relationship in the end, because it's an important relationship. It matters. Yeah, it's never seemed like anything other than a bad thing to me until I finished your book like six hours ago. <laughs> well, and, you know, in this current moment, it doesn't feel good to feel afraid, you know. Well, it doesn't feel good, although, like, it is good that people are afraid. I mean, literally, the basically in this country, the only defense we have right now is people being so afraid that they stay home. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about how cool it was to see, you know, New Yorkers going back into the streets after 9-11 or different places when different communities have, you know, sort of taken back their streets after a terrible attack or a, a mass shooting or whatever the case may be. And that's bravery. And it's kind of amazing, right, when people do that. But we really don't need that kind of bravery right now. And that's not to suggest that we want to sort of like embrace our fear entirely and retreat completely. Like you still need the bravery of like, you know, getting groceries for your elderly neighbor who can't go out or, you know, that, that kind of, there's room for bravery in this scenario too, but it's different than what we normally think about in terms of how we react to bad situations. I think. Yeah, that seems right. What do you think your mom would think of the book? <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, what she would think. Part of me thinks she'd be kind of mortified that I sort of air our business out a little bit. You know, I, I hope that she wouldn't be mortified, but it's possible that she would be. I think she would be, she'd definitely be proud. She was always, always really proud of me about everything, <laughs> almost without exception. <laughs> <laughs> 
what, uh, that's what gives me the confidence to drive seven hours. Yeah, there you go. That's how you fashion a incredibly successful freelance career from the middle of the Yukon Territory. Just the uh, the relentless faith of a of a loving mother. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, I'm very glad that I uh, I found you this Zen. I wasn't sure where where you were going to be, but this is like a very calm version of it. Yeah, uh, we'll see how long this calm lasts, but but for now, it's a nice space to be in. It's very it feels very good in this calm bubble that I'm in. Well, if you um, if you if the medicine ball swings back the other way. And you want to talk, you know, you can just call me. We'll, we'll do a little epilogue to the episode. Okay. Just full meltdown, uh, full meltdown <laughs> epilogue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's basically what the show is going to be for the next six months anyway. So, hey, Eva, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Marina Clementi. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And thanks so much to Eva Holland for uh, making a blanket fort in her house in Whitehorse and uh, talking to me about all of that. Her new book is called Nerve. It's out April 14th. Pick up a copy. We'll see you next week. Stay home. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.